continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles in the pew, and we'll be on page 868 in that Bible. Uh, we've been uh, in this first section uh, where Matthew is listing a bunch of Jesus parables. Um, a friend of ours, Doug, came in and, and taught a couple weeks ago, and then uh, Spencer taught us last week, and, and this is kind of wrapping up the first section of Jesus' parables. Um, parables, if as a refresher, parables are stories. They're, um, they're fictitious stories. Jesus makes them up. Uh, there's no, we're going to talk about some people. These people do not exist. Um, they're just devices that Jesus is using to give us spiritual truth. And um, if I'm honest, part of me hates parables. Like I, I really don't like it when Jesus teaches this way because I want a list of rules. Some of you are like me, some of you are not. I understand that. But, but like I make lists of things that I have to do and I check off boxes and it gives me great joy. Um, and I want to know like, okay, what do, what's required of me? What's expected of me? Where are the boxes that I have to keep my life within? And, and we get that in Scripture sometimes. There's, these, there's clear sections. But a lot of times, Jesus says things that are confusing, that are hard to understand. And he's not, he's not alone in this. If you read the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, there's a long tradition of Hebrew wisdom literature in the Bible. And, and the Bible teaches us many times through straightforward things, straightforward sayings, but sometimes it uses poetry and stories and proverbs. One of my favorite proverbs to illustrate this, and you don't have to turn there, but it's in uh, Proverbs chapter 26. It's an incredibly helpful verse. Proverbs 26, 4 says, don't answer a fool according to his foolishness or you'll be like him yourself. And you think, that's great. I can do that. I will make, I will, you know, put that in my notebook and I'll get that done. And then the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his foolishness or he'll become wise in his own eyes. And I go, what's going on? Like, which one do I do? And if you get online, you can read somebody who doesn't like the Bible and they'll say stuff like, look, contradictions in the Bible. But if we're going to give the benefit of the doubt to like a masterful piece of ancient literature, maybe the author of Proverbs is doing something there by putting two seemingly contradictory phrases right next to each other. And I think he's saying that sometimes you're going to want to engage people that are foolish, and sometimes you're not. And you're going to have to figure that out. <laughs> and I hate that. I don't like that at all. I want to know exactly what to do all the time, but that's not how it works. Jesus is a wisdom teacher. He's a lot of things, but one of the things he is is a wisdom teacher, and he's what they would call a rabbi, and, and it would be normal for a rabbi to say things that are kind of cryptic. Proverbs chapter 2 starts like this, My son, if you accept my words and store up your com my, my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding, furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. The, the writer of Proverbs encourages us to dig in and seek wisdom. 
And one of the ways that Jesus is modeling that for us is he is speaking in parables and stories. They're not super straightforward and they take some thinking to figure out. Jesus isn't teaching to the test. He, he's, he's, there's not like an exam with a set of questions. And if you just study these things, you can, it's multiple choice and you can pick the right box and you'll be good. He's, he's challenging us and he's inviting us into the story to meditate on it, to seek out wisdom in it and to apply it to our lives in different ways. And the unfortunate thing is that takes work. Right? For those of us that say we want to follow Jesus, that we, we trust in the authority of this book and we want it to impact our lives, it's not always easy. When I was little, I, I, was, I was a pretty avid reader and I would read books that had words in them that I didn't understand. And so I would go to my mom and I would say, mom, what does this word mean? And what would she say? Go look it up. Why did she say that? Because there's something about the process of me learning that is good for me and not just being handed the answers. And so this is what Jesus is going to do this morning. And what I, the question I want to ask of this text and to all of us is, in God's kingdom, which Jesus has been talking about as we've been studying Matthew, he's been announcing that God's kingdom has come. And we've talked about how this is a new way that he has for us to live, a new way to be human. And the question for us this morning is, is God's kingdom valuable? For me, for you, do we find value in God's kingdom? So look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. So this parable, one verse, one little story about a man and a treasure I want to talk about these first two stories. I want to talk about finding the kingdom. Is the kingdom valuable? What, what does it look like to find the kingdom? The problem with these parables is that I don't know what they mean. There's two really solid interpretations of these parables, and they're completely different. Some people would say that the man represents Jesus, and the treasure represents his people. And he sells everything he has to get his people. And some would say that the man represents the person that's seeking the kingdom of God and the treasure represents the kingdom of God. And, and this person gives up everything they've had for the joy of the kingdom. And both of those things are beautiful biblical ideas. Jesus does sacrifice himself for us. But I'm going to go the other way. I'm, I think, and you can disagree with me, but I think that in the context of what Matthew is giving us about the story of Jesus, I think the man in this parable is the one who would be seeking out the kingdom of God and that the treasure is the kingdom. And so looking at verse 44, we have this little story. There's, there's a guy, he's in a field. He finds a treasure in a field. He reburies the treasure so that no one else finds it. And he goes and he buys the field so that he can get the treasure. It's important not to push too hard for meaning in the parables. Like there's a big overall meaning and there might be some secondary meanings. But if we dig too hard in the details, we kind of miss the point. Like nobody's 
asking the question of Jesus like, well, what was the man's name? What, what was being grown in the field? Was the treasure rubies or diamonds or gold bullion? None of that matters. What matters is this guy finds a treasure and he gives up everything he has to get it. So this is a pretty weird story for us. We don't often bury treasure. Um, but in the ancient Near East, only really rich people have access to banks. There were banks in big Roman cities. Uh, but most people, if, you know, if your family died and you received a small inheritance, you would bury it in the ground. It was the safest place to put it. You knew where it was. Nobody else did. You could come back and get it later. So for this man to be, maybe he's working in the field, maybe he's wandering through the field and he finds this treasure. This is like picking up a lottery ticket off the street that you didn't buy and that's the winning number. It's, it's a rare thing, but it's an amazing thing. The contents of this field are worth more than everything else that this man owns. And I want us to look at how he finds it. He's not, he's not looking for it. He's not out in the field with a metal detector looking for treasure. He just, he just finds it. And I think that's the story of how some of us meet Jesus. We're just kind of doing life. We're going about our business, trying to make ends meet, figuring out as best we can. And we happen to find the good news that Jesus loves us and he died on the cross for our sins and he has a new kind of life in store for us. There's a, there's a, a nonprofit called the Gideons. They're responsible for putting Bibles in hotel rooms, among other things. A friend of mine's a Gideon, and I, I think I'm going to have him come share a little bit about their ministry at some point this year. But their whole ministry is built on the idea that people are going to stumble upon the gospel. And they've got story after story after story of men and women at their lowest going into a hotel room. Maybe they're suicidal. Maybe they're just despairing, and they open up that drawer, and there's a Bible and they open it up and they hear about Jesus and it changes their lives. And they weren't looking for it. They weren't planning for it. They just, it just happened and they found it and it was beautiful and glorious and good. See, there's a tension here because in this, in this story that Jesus tells, the, the kingdom, the gospel is hidden. It's not out in the open. And the whole one of the things that we believe here at Revelation Church so strongly that we named our church after it is that God reveals himself to people. The whole uh, basis of our worldview is that God is seeking after people to make a human family. And he loves every single one of us. And he is asking every single one of us to be a part of that family. But sometimes from our perspective, I think it does seem like we just kind of stumbled across it. We were invited to an event that we weren't planning on going to, or we, we found a Bible somewhere, or somebody gave us a tract on the side of the street, if people still do that sort of thing. And all of a sudden, our life was changed. And that's an amazing story. 
In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has. Joy, the the life that Jesus has for you and I is so much better than however we were living without him. Because we settle. We settle for just dumb things. We settle for money. We settle for security. We settle for popularity. We settle for comfort, for pleasure. Ironically, most of those things really require money to be experienced well. That's what Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. He says, I was the richest king that I knew of, and I spent all my money on women and horses and buildings and gardens and food and drink and everything I could get my hands on. At the end of the day, it was all worthless. And yet that's where we all find ourselves, just trying to figure life out. Where can I find meaning? Where can I find happiness? And Jesus is so much better than all the things that the world offers us. The man gives up everything he has, all his other things, all the less valuable things in pursuit of the kingdom because the kingdom is more important. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's worth more. Jesus continues in verse 45 again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. So this story is very similar to the last one, but it's got some key differences. This man, he's a dealer in pearls. He's actively looking for pearls. He knows a good pearl when he sees one. And I think that's the story of some of us as well. Maybe we have a bent for philosophy or, or religion or, or, or we're just argumentative people. I don't know. Or you, we like to research and, we, and we, we go in pursuit of spiritual things. How am I going to find meaning? I'm going to go after this thing and I'm going to go after that thing and see what this philosophy has to say about that and see what that religion looks like. And something about the, the claims of Jesus compels us to look at the claims of Christ. Maybe your story is that you had a whole handful of pearls. You're a dealer in pearls and you've got a whole smorgasbord of pearls. You've got a little bit of, maybe Buddhism makes you feel centered. A little bit of materialism because it feels good to go shopping. A little consumerism because it feels good to show other people that you have better stuff than they do. A little pantheism, God is kind of everywhere. That kind of feels a little spooky and you like that. Whatever it is, you're just like here and there and I like a little bit of that and a little bit of that. But then you came across the gospel of Jesus. Then you came across Christ where he says, you know what, all of those things, they're lesser than me. And the, the, the interesting thing is there are, there are aspects of different philosophies and faith traditions that are appealing. I mean, you can, there's, a, there's truth to be found in Buddhism. There is truth to be found in Islam. There is truth to be found in a lot of different philosophies and traditions. But I've come to believe that they all fall short of Jesus. And this is what this man finds. He is looking for pearls and he finds the pearl, the one pearl, and he sells all his other pearls, everything he has, and he buys that pearl. 
So the kingdom of heaven is responded to by those that find it valuable. But, but what if you don't find it valuable? What if, what if you don't decide to take up Jesus on his offer? This is what he gets to next. In verse 47, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we talked about finding the kingdom. Now let's talk about joining the kingdom. Jesus, Jesus has this, um, this way of taking a very nice conversation and getting really dark with it all of a sudden. Have you notice that? Like, now we're going to talk about fish and fire. And you think, wow, that's, that's a way to win a crowd. <laughs> but Jesus has something important to say here. And he bases it in, in what his audience would have understood. There's about 24 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. The Jewish people had very strict rules, very clear rules in their scriptures about what kind of fish they could eat and what kind of fish they couldn't eat. Specifically, fish with fins and scales they could eat. If they didn't have fins and scales, they couldn't eat them. There's eel in the Sea of Galilee. There's also some catfish, and depending on which rabbi you read, you may or may not be able to eat a catfish if you're Jewish. It's complicated. Um, but But the audience that Jesus is speaking to would have been like, yeah, okay, I get it. Some fish are good and some fish are bad. And the fisherman just throws out this giant net. It's a a big net. It probably takes multiple boats to hold it together. And it pulls in this load of fish. And some of the fish in the net are good fish. They're valuable fish. They can be taken to market. And some fish are bad fish. Nobody will eat them because they're unclean. And they get thrown out. But what I think it's important to see is that the fisherman doesn't want bad fish. Like he's not hoping for like a 60-40 split of good fish and bad fish. That's not economically helpful to him. He wants 100% good fish. And the fact that there's bad fish is just a consequence of the fish, not of the fisherman. If you set aside the fact that the fishermen want to eat the fish, it's not part of the parable, the fisherman's intentions are good. They want to gather the good fish. He's not looking for bad fish, and he's certainly not making bad fish. There are some philosophies uh, in in the church that that would seem to force us to think that God chooses some people and loves some people, but other people he, at the very least, just doesn't choose and he ignores, and at the worst, he actually sends them to judgment for some strange reason. And I just, I just don't see that in the heart of Christ, and I don't see that in the teaching of Scripture. I think God's goal to use the wording of the parable, is to have a net full of good fish. But yet the reality is, at the end of time, when everyone is judged for who they are, Jesus says some people, he calls them evil. Or the word could be translated bad. And Jesus has put this choice in front of us multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've been with us for a while, he pretty continually says, are you with me or are you against me? Are you on my side or are you on the side of the enemy? 
And the good news in that is you and I, we get to choose that. It's an invitation. Do you want to be with Jesus? Do you want life? Do you want the kingdom? Do you want all of the valuable things that he offers or not? And you and I, we get to make that decision on our own. Jesus asks us, do you turn from the self-centered world that you were born into and become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom or not? Do you accept the invitation? If we look back to the stories we just read, do you find the treasure? Do you, do you buy the field? Do you buy the pearl? And notice that it's not, and there's, there's plenty of other um, areas in, in God's word that teach us this. It's not that it's not the fish aren't doing anything. They're not, they're not good enough. They haven't become good fish. They just are. The, the judgment that, that God has for all of us in the future is not about what you did or what you didn't do or what you know, religious um, rituals you completed or what moral code you followed. It's who do you belong to? Are you citizen of the kingdom of God? Have you been adopted into the family? And that just comes from saying yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I want you to be king. I want to put away whatever I was trusting in before, and I want you to be in charge. It's not complicated, but it is costly, right? The men in the stories, they sell everything they have. They put away everything else. And so to follow Jesus, it, it, might, it might be expensive financially. It might be expensive relationally. It might mean taking desires that you have that you find out like, ah, oh, that's, that's not what God wants for me and, and having to deal with that. And that's hard. But it all comes down to the idea, do you find the kingdom valuable? So Jesus says there's judgment. Judgment is a scary thing. It's a difficult topic, and, and we, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it in church. We don't like to talk about it outside of church. It'd be much better if the whole Bible was scrubbed of that idea. We'd get along with everyone much better. But Jesus keeps bringing it up. He says there's going to be a day where everyone will stand before God. We're going to talk a lot more about judgment later because Jesus is going to talk a lot more about judgment later. But notice a couple things in this passage. The worthless fish are thrown out and the evil people are thrown into a blazing furnace. That's a metaphor, but it's a very powerful metaphor. Judgment is permanent. There's not, there's not another option at the end. We've been given the opportunity now to trust in Christ. And on the day of judgment, that opportunity will be gone. Judgment is final and it's serious. And that's why Jesus brings it up, I think. Jesus is constantly bringing up this warning because he cares for us and he wants, to be, wants us to be with him. Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and and what that means is there will be grief and there will be angry. Gnashing of teeth is a metaphor in the Bible for anger, for being mad at someone. And what, 
what I see there is that nobody is judged incorrectly. Over and over and over again, when the Bible pictures the judgment of mankind at the end of time, those that are condemned are God's enemies. There's nobody that's like, wait, I didn't want, I wanted you, but you didn't give me a chance. Or I, I, I would have... I would have been in the kingdom, but you didn't ask me. Like everyone is given the opportunity. Do you want to be in the kingdom of God? And the ones that say no ultimately don't want Jesus. And God destroys his enemies. The person that rebels against God has chosen against the treasure, has chosen against the pearl. They've decided, no, no, Jesus, you're not good enough. I'll take my chances with whatever thing I think is more valuable. Joining the kingdom is a serious thing to Jesus. But let's look at living in the kingdom. Look at verse 51. Have you understood all these things? And they answered him, yes. Of course they answered him, yes. Would you answer no? Jesus says, you got it? And they go, absolutely, totally, yes, I got it. Makes plenty of sense. Matthew is generous here. If you read Mark's gospel, Mark, which many people believe that Mark's gospel is Peter's recollection of his time with Jesus that Mark wrote down. And Mark is constantly pointing out how clueless the disciples are. They, they don't get it. They don't understand. They're fighting with each other. They're just confused. Matthew is much more generous. Um, so I don't know if the, the disciples are like, yes, because they do understand it, or yes, because we're not going to say no. Jesus doesn't call them out on it, so maybe they do get it. Maybe they're like totally tracking with him. Therefore, Jesus said to them, he's speaking to his disciples, every teacher of the law or every scribe is another way to say that, who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storehouse, storeroom, treasures new and old. So a scribe, a scribe is a professional religious teacher in, uh, in the Jewish society. And their job is to explain God's word to people. We see this, I didn't write it down, but in the book of Ezra, towards the end, um, Ezra brings all the people back from Persia, from captivity, and they all gather in Jerusalem, and Ezra reads from the, wor the words of the law, and the scribes, they go around and help people understand it. They I think the words are, they explain the sense of it. And so the scribe was a really important job in Jewish life, and, and Jesus I think Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and I also think Matthew is talking about himself here, because I think Matthew sees himself in that role as he writes this book. Let me tell you the story about Jesus. Let me help you understand the kingdom of God. Every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. I like the Marvel movies. I've seen all the Marvel movies. I like watching the Marvel movies. I like talking about the Marvel movies. But often I will get into a conversation with somebody about a Marvel movie and I will suddenly realize that I am not a real Marvel fan 
because they will say, oh yeah, that part in that movie, that was a callback to issue 174 in 1973 where the, and, I'll, and I've just lost it because I've never, I've never read a comic. I didn't grow up with comics. I have no idea anything about the comics. And all of a sudden, I'm a very small person in that conversation because I have nothing to add to it. When people love things, they, they gather them up, right? They get old things and new things. If you really love something, you have a room for it, right? You ever go to somebody's house and they have a room? Like, this is the theater room, or this is the music room. I have a friend named Judy. She has a craft room. It's fantastic. I don't do, I have no craft skills, but I just look at it in awe. I mean, there's, there's like file systems with cards and like rolls of ribbon and like there's like a glue station and it's just amazing. And she's into it. Jesus is a wisdom teacher and he's commissioning his disciples and I think Matthew specifically to be wisdom teachers. As we read Matthew's story about Jesus, we learn more about Jesus and we have the opportunity to see Jesus more clearly. And if we want to see Jesus, if we want to understand his kingdom, we have to learn things that are old from the Hebrew Bible. Matthew's constantly saying, this thing that happened, that was like that other thing that happened back then. And we also have to learn things that are new. Jesus says some crazy stuff that nobody had ever heard before. The apostles, Jesus uh, commissioned teachers, they go out and they write the New Testament and they, they say things that are new to the people. And then even today, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of his people, he teaches us things. And we have to learn how these old things and these new things work together. And to kind of bring it back to the beginning, that's not easy. That's really hard. It takes time. It takes study. It takes prayer. It takes getting involved in a community of Jesus' people and working out what it means to follow Christ together. Some things about following Jesus are really simple. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. That's easy. That's simple. Little children can go like, yeah, sign me up for that. But then there's other things that are hard to understand. I love there's a, the, the very end of, of one of Peter's letters, he, he talks about Paul and he says, Paul and his writings, which are hard to understand. And I think, yes, Peter, they are. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for acknowledging that. But what, are we, what else would we expect from the God of the universe? What else would we expect from a being that's so much bigger and greater and more powerful and holds the entire cosmos in his hand? Oh yeah, I got him all figured out. I don't think so. But that's what following Jesus is. It's, it's God graciously walking us down this path of discovery, of growing in wisdom. And that's the life that Jesus invites us into, a life that's joyful, more valuable than anything that we can imagine, more valuable than anything we are seeking after outside of him. But a life that's also sometimes confusing, sometimes challenging and hard. And a life that's ultimately different from the world around us. 
And so do we find the kingdom valuable? I want to be someone who can say, yeah, that I, I've put everything I am into following Christ. And I don't always do that. I wander all the time. I look, I see shiny new things and I think, oh, maybe that's better than Jesus. And he goes, no, it's not. And he lets me, he lets me go. And I go, oh yeah, nope, that was not good. That was not as good as you. He's gracious. He brings me back. But as we, as we grow as followers of Jesus, we grow together and we discover these things together. I really love the Chronicles of Narnia and, um, by C.S. Lewis. And in the second book, it's called Prince Caspian, if you haven't read it, there's this, this scene. And to, to set the scene a little bit, in the first book, there's this character named Lucy. And she meets Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure in the book. And they have this grand adventure, and it's awesome, and the book ends, and it's a happy ending. And then in book two, Lucy goes back to Narnia, the land where Aslan lives. And they spend a good deal of the book looking for him. They can't find him. And they finally find him. And Lucy says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? said Lucy. I am not, said Aslan, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I think that's the kind of life that Jesus is calling us into. It's not an instantaneous life. It's not a life where all of our questions are answered. It's not a life where Everything always makes sense. But it is a life where Jesus is amazing and powerful and beautiful and worthy of honor. And we think we understand that. And then a little time goes by and we go, oh, wow, I had no idea. And then a little more time goes by and we go, wow, he's even better than I thought. And so we, part of the way we celebrate Christ here is we, we take communion every week. And so the, the bread and the cup are available. We have wine and juice, your choice based on your conscience. And Jesus said, the night that he was betrayed and sent to the cross to die in our place, he said, remember me. He said, this, this bread, this represents my body broken for you. And this cup represents the new covenant. A covenant is a, is a unilateral agreement. It's a, it's a decision that Jesus makes to love us. The new covenant that I'm making with you in my blood. And so as, we, as the band comes back up and we sing the stories of God and we remind each other 
of who we are in Christ through the lyrics of the songs. Uh, communion will be available. Feel free to come up and take it back to your seats and, and spend some time in prayer. Ask yourself a little bit about how much you value the kingdom of God. How much do you value Christ and who he is and what he's done and how he's asked you to live in the world? And remember who he is for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, if, you, if you're just maybe, maybe you've stumbled upon this church service or maybe you're seeking fine pearls and you're checking Jesus out, welcome. This is the place to be among God's people to learn about Jesus. Communion is, I like to explain it as, it's like a pledge of allegiance to the cross to the kingdom of God. And so if you, if you don't feel that like you're a part of the kingdom this morning, I would recommend that you don't take communion with us. But spend some time thinking about what God is speaking to you through his word this morning. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. God, it is, it is a rock for us. God, it is powerful and your spirit uses it to speak. And God, thank you for the reminder of the value of who you are in your kingdom and the life of following you that you freely invite us into. And God, even thank you for the warning, the warning of judgment. God, help us to be sober-minded. Help us to see things clearly. God, help us to put our trust in Jesus and his work on our behalf. Just help us to hold on to him. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.